welcome to Dark Materials. I'm Faye. Hi. And I'm Rachel. Hello. This is usually a podcast where we're reading through and discussing Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials novels, a chapter at a time, spoiler free. But in this special episode, we are talking about the Northern Lights Lantern Slide. I'm all right. I'm all right. How are you? I'm good. I think I, I think I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> mm, mm, yes, I feel that. I've got a couple of weeks off work, and I went on the train for the first time eee. to visit my parents back up north, and meh, it was fine. Like obviously, it was good to see family, but being on the train wearing a face mask for like three hours was was a journey definitely although you get used to it pretty quickly like obviously I've been wearing face masks when I've been going shopping and whatever but it's not like an extended amount of time yeah this is three hours without taking it off at all is quite a long time because I've been fortunate enough that I've only had like short public transport journeys or Mm. short trips to the shop where you're not in there for a very long time so Yeah. yeah one of the things that not scares me about going home but it's like an added discomfort on top of the fact that you're having to get a long train journey with lots of people around that stops yeah. me from going home at the moment is the wearing a mask for that long. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Luckily the train, because obviously there's social social distancing on the train, so like the trains are pretty dead because they're obviously not filling all the seats. Wearing the mask is fine. It was a bit annoying on the way back, on the way there, but I think on the way back I was used to it from the way there that it wasn't mm. too bad. But I had a nightmare because. I with everything that's going on I forgot that my rail card had expired so I've got two together rail card for Liam and I and the train conductor checked our tickets and they was like you're gonna have to buy an entire new ticket and I was like what the fuck I had to buy a new ticket it was like 195 pounds I'd already paid like 70 quid but then he did end up telling me he was like oh if you do this thing if you buy a new rail card and then you request a refund you should get it. So like I requested the refund for the ticket when I got in. So hopefully I get that money back. But I was so fucking mad because like with everything going on, it's just not something that I've thought about because obviously I've why, not... Look, why would you renew your rail card? Trains have just not been like a thing that yeah. you've had to think about for so long. <laughs> you should just be like, it's been unprecedented times, mate. Right? <laughs> but like, that's the thing. Like I thought that, um, that he would kind of react to that and he just didn't at all. But I think he had his like supervisor with him. I think it was one of those, you know, when sometimes you get on a bus or a train and the supervisor is clearly like with the train conductor or the bus driver or whatever, seeing how they like interact with people and like how they get fares and stuff. And I think she was with him uh, at the time. But then after when I, cause he took my ID, he just took it off me. He was like, have you got your ID? And I said, yeah. And I thought he just wanted to check like my name against like the rail card or something. He's like, I'm taking this and you have to meet me at the front of the train after it's uh, got into London. I was like, what the fuck has just happened? <laughs> that is really weird. Right? I, I thought that was a thing. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so I had to go and meet him at the front of the train. And that's when he was nicer about like telling me how to get a refund he was like i shouldn't be telling you this but like, if you do this this and this you should you'll be able to get a refund and all this shit so i think it was like his supervisor that was with him when he originally did it i was like i can't yeah. believe you just took my id liam was like do you want me to go and talk to him i was like number one liam thank you also don't need you to fight my battles i'll go and talk to him myself and i will do that but also i was just a bit in shock because they just yeah. took my id uh yeah so that was fun 
that's what you get for for going going home to see. Was it nice to see your family? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was really nice to see them. It's just difficult because I always feel like so under pressure when I go back to see my family because you got to see so many people and like I always feel like the pressure from my parents to go and see everyone. But we were only back for like one full day and then like half a day either side. Mm. So it's really difficult. And all I all I did really was uh, was play with my niece Lexi and she's got a bike. She's like nine. No, she's ten. She'll be 11 in, in December, oh boy. <laughs> She's got a bike and I haven't been on a bike in like 15 years. And I was riding her bike round the estate where my mum and dad live. And like she was chasing me. And to like everyone out on the street who was like doing the garden or whatever, it just looked like I'd stolen this child's bike. She was like running after me like, Faye, give me my bike back. I was Brilliant. like, this is great. I haven't been on a bike in fucking ages. I have a bad relationship with bikes. I pretty much definitely broke my nose when I was little when I went like head over handlebars right into the tarmac I have like a really distinct memory of like running home because I was only like halfway up the cul-de-sac when I went over and um you know like the little green and white gingham school dresses that you used to wear in primary school it was one of those and I just remember the entire front of it was just completely soaked in blood from my nose and that started a string of me having nosebleeds like consistently almost on a daily basis up till I was like 16 and I went and got my nose cauterized um nightmare but every time I've ever been on a bike after that especially as an adult now I'm just have the the fear is in me (laughs) I feel that like I'm kind of similar I never had anything as traumatic as that but I've definitely gone over the handlebars before and when I got on Lexi's bike I was like what are the brakes like because I remember when I went over the handlebars on my bike it's because the brakes were too like sharp like huge yeah, like yeah. <laughs> yeah and you just fly over and I was like testing the brakes like are these brakes gonna be okay and I was like okay they're way better than the bike I had so that was fine but yeah when I first got on it I was like <gasps> but yeah what have you been up to Ugh, I've been as per usual, I really like to overfill my plate. So last week, I like set myself this massive challenge of like getting a complete shop update done and fulfilling a bunch of pre-orders of all these little dice mice that I make because I've signed up for like an online version of a physical event called the UK Games Expo. It's the 22nd and 23rd of August, or 21st, 22nd, 23rd. It's like a big tabletop gaming convention that usually happens in Birmingham, but they're doing like an online event in place of it because of COVID. Mm. Um, so I've signed up for that and I'm kind of like, I should restock my shop with all of my D&D themed things. Fortunately, it's mid-August, but for some reason last week I was like, that's when I'm going to do all this stuff. I'm going to get it done this week. And so I just spent the entire week surrounded by dice mice, which was really nice. And I felt really good that I got everything done, but also I way underestimated how long it takes me to make those things. I went from like, this will be a nice week of doing something I know how to do that is like low pressure to like, I'm working myself like 12 hour shifts because I didn't think this through (laughs) and I want to get it done. So yesterday and today I've just been, the mice are done, my orders have been posted, I can like set the shop update going with mice like in a casual fashion and then I've just been sculpting some new things and like letting myself play because the past month or so has been really heavily focused on like doing a shop update and making more of the products I already make. And it's just been really nice to like play play with clay and make some fun shapes and just be a bit freer. How will the online convention go? Will it just will they just have links to your shop or will they sell your stuff on their website? So any any listeners that enjoy D D or tabletop games, take note. So basically they've got like this online thing where they've got different people, different games masters, different DMs hosting games via Zoom, Discord, etc. They've got 
new companies that are producing new games doing like demos of the games they've got q a's and stuff going with people that invented games all scheduled throughout the weekend that you can sign up for there's like different prices on them because they're not charging you like an entrance ticket like they would to the event usually so you pay like maybe two pounds to like sign up to play a game that'll last a couple of hours or whatever and then they've also got like an app i think that's going to be like an app version of the exhibition hall so you can ah, like walk cool. through the exhibition hall, which is where I think my shop will be. And that's basically just like, it'll be my logo. You click on it and it's pictures of my work and links to my website that I've set up. So it's probably not as beneficial for me as it is for the people doing the, running the games and stuff. But I'm hoping the people that sign up to play some games will also be like, oh, I'll have a browse of the shops that are available. Like, yeah. Maybe. I'm sure they will. Yeah. I'm sure they will. Because if they would have gone to the convention anyway, they would have definitely done that. So hopefully yeah. that'll still be in their brains to do it. But yeah, if anyone's interested, there's like a whole list of all the games you can play. And the app isn't live yet. You can't browse the exhibition hall until the actual weekend, which is an odd one, I think. Because I want people to be able to see my shit now. But whatever. Yeah, yeah, true. (laughs) I guess it's just like nice that they're doing something in place of the actual event. Because initially it was supposed to happen in May and then they had to push it back to August. And then they were like, August is not going to happen. COVID is still raging. Let's cancel the event and do something online instead. And I think it's really good that they've done it online. So that's UK Games Expo. And the virtual event is called Virtually Expo. Maybe it'd be cool because like, I guess people that are listening abroad and are into tabletop gaming can sign up to participate in stuff they wouldn't have been able to do because it was in the Yeah, UK. totally. Yeah, hopefully they'll get more people browsing and or playing the games and stuff. One thing that I was going to mention is that we've got a trailer for season two. Oh my god, yes. Did everybody see the season two trailer? <laughs> oh my god. No spoilers here, obviously, because this is still a book episode, so we won't say too much. Uh, if you haven't read The Soul Knife... Maybe don't watch the trailer, but it looks bloody great. Yes, I'm very excited for it. And the comic con panel that they did was really fun as well. But again, if if you're oh my god, spoilers, ahoy! Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, <laughs> particularly so attached it. to any characters, don't watch that panel because they definitely spoil some stuff about some major characters in it. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, but yeah, if you if you've read the first trilogy then and you haven't seen it i think it's just on comic con's youtube channel and it was fun it was nice to see every all the faces of the people it was nice to see um ruth wilson because when you think about like the promo and stuff we've seen for his dark materials you see a lot of daphne obviously because she's lyra and you see a lot of lynn um and uh, a few other people but you don't see a lot of ruth wilson i assume it's just because she's super busy so it was nice to have her hand- answer questions about Mrs. Coulter. Mm. Also, I think she's not on Twitter, is she? She doesn't really do the social media. So she's she's an enigma, an, an, a, a mystery true. wrapped in an enigma that we are fascinated with. <laughs> so I guess we should start talking about lantern slides. Yeah, totally. Let's kind of explain what the lantern slides are because I'd never really heard of them. Our listener Laurel wrote in to let us know that she had a copy of the books with them in and kind of shared a bit more information about them, which is really exciting. And yeah, let's kind of have a talk about what they are. Philip does explain a little bit in the intro to the Lantern Slides. Basically, my explanation of them would be, I, I'm, I'll am i go into like what Philip says, because I think it's very interesting in terms of like conversations <laughs> that we've had before. But like my explanation of them would be, so they're included, as far as I'm aware, they're included in the 10th anniversary editions of the books and they're also included in the omnibus editions, like the ones that have got all three books in one, which I almost bought 
when I was buying my copies, but then I thought it'd be a bit too big to read. And also I knew that I'd probably, there'd be points, I mean, before lockdown, there'd be points where I'd probably be like making notes on a, on a train and I didn't want to take like the massive version of the of the yeah. book with I me. I feel like almost the massive version is for somebody that is only ever going to read at home or that just wants it to have it rather than to read it. <laughs> yeah, very true, very true. Because I definitely couldn't read like a stack that thick. <laughs> yeah, totally, I'm the same. They are basically extra paragraphs that Philip wrote that weren't included in the finished book. And there's one for the Northern Lights, there's one for the Subtle Knife, and there's one for the Amber Spyglass. Obviously, in this episode, we're only going to be talking about the one that's included at the end of Northern Lights. Yeah, I'd say that's probably the best explanation. Just tiny little nitbitty paragraphs here and there, which are really interesting, but just didn't make it to the final book. Yeah, Philip, in the intro to one of them, he says a really lovely thing, which I'll read. He says, In every narrative, there are gaps. Places where, although things happened and characters spoke and acted and lived their lives, the story says nothing about them. It was fun to visit a few of these gaps and speculate a little on what I might have seen there. I think that's a perfect description, really. It is just, we weren't in the room. What might have happened in the room? (laughs) Totally. The interesting thing about his intro (laughs) is that... He says something along the lines of that it's it's sometimes possible for an author to revisit and like tinker with a story, but not adapt it to another medium, which is interesting for the fact that at this point when I don't know when Philip wrote this introduction, but they fit, the lantern slides first appeared in the tenth anniversary edition, like I mentioned, and that was two thousand and five. And the Golden Compass film came out in 2007. So at first, I thought that he was having a dig at the film. Like, I, I did he like the film? I don't... I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not sure. At first, I thought, when he said, oh, it's not, it's not always a good idea to adapt it to another medium, I thought, is he having a dig at the film? But the film actually came out two years later. No, so he's kind of saying it's not always a good idea for the original author to be the one that does the adaptation. I think that's what he's saying. Oh, okay. He says, sometimes, yeah, it becomes possible to revisit a story and play with it, not to adapt it to another medium. It's not always a good idea for the original author to do that, nor to revise or improve it. Tempting though that is, it's too late. You should have done that before it was published and your business now (laughs) is with new books, not old ones. Philip. (laughs) The shade you're throwing on yourself. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I'm so interested in this. I would love to ask him about this because like you said he's literally throwing shade on himself what changed his mind right when did he write this intro and when were those revisions that we've seen to the books made because in within northern lights there's so many i wonder if he categorically sees them as different because he's not it's not like a whole paragraph it's not like a whole page that he's added necessarily in the revisions that we've spotted some of Mm. them might be publishers decisions where you know somebody's done another reread of a draft or somebody's done another reread of the book for for their publishing company i don't know if it's always published with the same publisher maybe it's just that like someone's read it and gone that's not very clear we need to get philip to revise this before it's this edition's published so i don't i don't know i guess he's talking more major but then some of the lantern slides that are about to read that are little things that he wanted to throw in but knew he couldn't fit in the books are definitely things that we might have spotted as a difference between our books, you know? I, th- I definitely see what you're saying about, like, just because they're super small. But also, there's stuff that's just not needed, in my personal opinion. So, like, I understand the bit that we were talking about in our wrap-up episode uh, where we noticed, or you noticed, uh, that people were talking on Reddit about how 
there's been some additions to the end of Northern Lights around Roger's death to make it a little bit clearer with what's going on. I think that's fine because it does make it clearer. But then changing Mrs. Coulter's hair colour, like, what is the point? I know that apparently he loved Nicole Kidman's performance as Mrs. Coulter, but would you love it that much that you would actually go back to your original book and change it? Again, I wonder if that was, he said it because he probably ought to say it because that's a change that's been made in some of the versions. But I wonder if that, again, was like a publisher decision as well. Some of it might be influenced from publishers. I want to be in the room where it happens, Faye. I want to hear these (laughs) conversations happen where somebody's saying to Philip, like, you should change your hair colour. Or Philip saying, actually, guys, can we just republish the the next edition? Can it just have this one little change? And someone has to go through and change it. And like, I mean, I'm not imagining them with like Tipex rewriting it in, but like... (laughs) (laughs) Do a little control find. Yeah, it's so interesting. I I started a note in my phone of questions to ask Philip, and that is the top one. I want to know. Yeah, it seems so nitpicky though in the grand scheme of questions. (laughs) I'm just like assuming that we're going to get that interview with Philip at some point. I'm like, yeah, I've just started to know his questions to ask Philip. (laughs) Uh, Well, from the Adam Buxton podcast, I hear he makes a cracking cup of tea. So we should just show up one day and be like, we've come for our cup of tea. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So it says in his intro that he called them the lantern slides because it reminds him of a wooden box that his grandpa used to have filled with glass slides that they'd used to watch together so like a projector and he also says that it's this magic lantern that Azriel uses in chapter two of northern lights and i was like oh, oh so not a powerpoint presentation pretty then. similar to a powerpoint <laughs> yeah shall we shall we delve into the first one so i i don't know if we've, we've explained this properly but i think uh, there are so there are nine slides in this selection yes yeah so there are nine and as we mentioned before they're just like little paragraphs really some of them are just a few sentences that have been added in by philip i don't think it's clear whether they were added into the text and then an editor said you don't need that or whether they were written after the book was finished and philip thought and he's just thought back and written i imagine it might even be a little combination so the first one is about jordan college we get a really great description of it and it's comparing it to like a great clockwork mechanism with cogs and like all working together for for like a purpose it would have actually i think it would have actually been really good to have this description in the book because it paints a more like concise picture of how the college works. Yeah, especially because we've had had so many descriptions of Jordan College in that first chapter. The first chapter and the third chapter, there were the most descriptions of like Lyra's Oxford and Lyra's experience of the college. And I think that this would have just fit right in. Yeah. It was perhaps taken out to like shorten a chapter if it felt too long, but I don't see why because it is very, it's a much more harmonious depiction of Jordan College as well. Because in the books, we see a lot, hear a lot about it being like quite ramshackle and quite disorganized and like scholars trying to wrangle Lyra and all this kind of stuff. Whereas this description, describing it more like a clock, describing like the rituals and habits and the like ancient traditions of like things that people can't remember why they do them, but they do them anyway. And the fact that it all functions together to form this like mechanism feels much more harmonious and interesting than a lot of the descriptions as it being like quite a ramshackle place yeah it's very true that everyone's got their job to do and they do it whether they know why they're doing it or not um it's quite interesting i think that it kind of shows how the college is so old and it's been like set in its ways for so long that people come in and even if they forget why they're doing it they just do it anyway because that's just how the college works and how it stays functional and it also steeped in patriarchy. Yeah, because totally. If this is how the system works, why should we? Why are we questioning it? Because this is how it's always worked. 
And it's another thing that we could hark back to in the books whenever they talk about a custom that's outdated at Jordan College. We can look at this little lantern slide that describes it as a clock and the way that people habitually follow these rituals and they don't even know why. And you go, hmm, hmm, patriarchy. Totally, 100%. (laughs) The second one is about Lyra at the Burtyard. And I really like this one. We see Lyra hanging around the Burtyard watching the Egyptians. So she's clearly got some fascination with them. I would imagine that this would probably come before we meet any of the Egyptian characters properly. And it shows Lyra like kind of like hanging around, like watching what they're doing. She kind of wants to be close to them, right? And I would assume it's because of their like family bond. And like she wants that. So she's kind of lingering around. I remember so clearly I used to do that stuff all the time when I was younger. Do you know, like you either like linger around like a bunch of kids that you want to be friends with and you or like a bunch of adults that you want to talk to or whatever. And you think you're being like super inconspicuous, like just like chilling. Where whereas really you're just like in plain view and they're like, What is that little kid doing looking at us? <laughs> <laughs> oh. I love this description though. It's very it really heavily links the Egyptian roots in the book to more of like the traveller canal boat culture that we might think of today, which is something they took steps away from in the TV series that we had conversations about in our interview yeah. with Joel. Philip describes Lyra watching one of the old Egyptians touching up his boat and repainting it and copying a rose and lily pattern onto the side of the boat. And that really harks to like old school canal boats. It very much, if you ever watched the TV show Rosie and Jim as a child on the lovely old narrow boat. And my grandma used to live on a narrow boat. And she, I remember when she like moved back to the valley away from the canals and like she would was still really into painting all the flowers and all the narrowboat flowers and um it's a re- really beautiful tradition of painting these lovely ornate flowers on the side of your boat and it's a very like classic image and so I love that that's something that Philip's thought about yeah and then I love that it's something that Lyra wants to glom onto because she's watched the Egyptian painting these beautiful flowers on the side of his boat and then Lyra decides that she wants to do it as well, but she doesn't have a boat. What she does have is her favourite dress. So she starts trying to paint, there's a description, she starts trying to paint these flowers onto her dress before she realises that this isn't going very well. I should have started embroidering them on. So she starts <laughs> embroidering it and then she's shit at embroidery because a sailor hasn't taught her how to sew yet. Yeah, And so she just completely fucks it up and throws the dress away and then has to come up with some excuse to Mrs Lonsdale as to why her favourite dress is completely disappeared. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And it also gives us a bit more background into her relationship with Egyptians, as we just mentioned. She's clearly watched them for a long time and has that longing to be near them. Because like when we, if you remember, like when we first heard about the Egyptians, we kind of just heard about Lyra terrorising them. Yeah. You can see that Lyra's got some love for them and she's not just committing Grand Theft Auto. She's actually... Yeah. You get a much more of a rivalry impression from the book. And I think if this paragraph was in there somewhere, we'd have maybe understood more of that love and connection that arises later on. Totally. This third one might be my favourite one, just for the fact that it's about Lee and his balloon. It's a bit shorter, so you could probably read it out loud if you want. (laughs) 
Lee Scoresby, attracted north by the money being made in the gold rush and making none, but acquiring a balloon by chance in a card game. He was a lover of a witch from the Karalia region, briefly, but she was killed in battle. She spoiled me for women younger than 300, but he had plenty of lovers, all the same. Oh my Ooh, god, Lee! You don't! <laughs> Lee! I love the idea that he's been with a witch. Totally. Part of me's like, mm, spoiled him for women younger than 300. It's like the opposite of the trope of like... The guy that can only date people under the age of 30. Yeah. It's like he can only date women over the age of 250. Thank you very much. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, Lee. Maybe it gives you more of an impression as well of like his respect for the witches, the way that he like speaks with Seraphina Peckler. He has had previous dealings with them. Yeah. And maybe that's why he has the confidence to be so brutally honest with her in the balloon because he, he knows witches. He's been with a witch. He's loved a witch. He... Apparently has loved many other women as well. <laughs> when I read like he had plenty of lovers all the same, I was like, oh, fan self, you know, just, just <laughs> fine. I, I would I wouldn't have a chance with Lee because I'm not younger. I'm younger than three hundred. So <laughs> well, this is the thing: is it she spoiled me for women younger than three hundred? Does that mean that he's no good? For women under 300 or does that mean he doesn't appreciate women under 300 i read it that he it is quite ambiguous you're right i read it as uh he now doesn't want to date anyone younger than 300 because he's been with the witch that was obviously older and obviously they had a good relationship or whatever I, yeah i read it as like i don't want to date women younger than that now well indeed <gasps> yeah I love that we learn that he won his balloon in a car- in, by chance in a card game because that's yeah. so interesting for his character because I just kind of assumed that... I know that we re- we had that chapter where he was saying to Serafina that he's not going to do this forever and he's doing it because he wants to make money and then like go back to Texas and, and live his life. But I just always assumed that his balloon was his passion and something that he'd always kind of like had that drive for and like learned as he was growing up and then we get this where he just won it by chance and I think Mm. that's I I like it actually like I think it gives a bit more depth to Lee's character that he's kind of just more willing to go wherever the wind takes him no pun intended for his balloon but like he's just like he's like okay cool I'll learn how to fly this balloon seeing as I won it I wonder if this influenced as well the choice to have him playing cards when Lyra first meets him in the TV show. Oh, yeah. He's playing cards at the table because I think there's maybe a couple of mentions in the book itself of him playing cards with Egyptians, but this is a much more like Lee is good at playing cards type paragraph that might suggest why, yeah, they would make a point of him having a scene of playing cards in the TV series when we meet him. And also, does this mean that he learned to fly the balloon all by himself or did the person he won it from teach him? Because it seems re- like all those like paragraphs- Take your bloody balloon and get out of here. Yeah. He's like, I don't know what to do. <laughs> all those paragraphs that we had in the book of like the boring balloon stuff that we didn't really go into, that we were just like, oh yeah, there's some balloon stuff here. Like that seemed really complicated. So surely it's not just something that he can like pick up on his own. He would have had to have had somebody teach him. It, ma- it all makes it seem very casual as well. He's like, oh, I'm just flying the balloon for the money, whatever. But like 100% you know he was as excited to like, win a balloon as John Farr was to find out that he could get an aeronaut on the team. Yeah, <laughs> like, totally. I'm sure he wasn't like, oh, a balloon. Great. I'm pretty he was probably like, oh, a balloon. <laughs> oh, I'm gonna fly. <laughs> <laughs> oh Lee, we love you. The fourth one 
is about Azrael and Yoffa, which is also a very interesting one, which is also quite short, right? It says, Azrael among the bears. Azrael says, Yoffa Ragnarsson, I'm going to be entirely frank with you, and follows it up with a big string of confident and overbearing lies. And Philip says he wonders if Azrael had noticed the Bear King's demon doll or not, or just the clue that he was acting not very bear-like. Or maybe it was just dumb luck, because we know that Azrael is a lucky fucker. But he knew the bears well enough and he was very like his daughter. So we see that he is like Lyra. He is able to like very comprehensively Mm -hmm. string lies together. It's interesting because we kind of assumed that Azrael was just wielding his power and influence over the bears. It's interesting to know that the way he got to where he was with the bears with his little like ice fortress being through lies and deception. Because I would have thought it would be through bribery and fear-mongering to be honest totally and it is super interesting because we as you mentioned like we've drawn the comparison between Azrael and Lyra quite a lot and I think one of the times we did it was was during the time where Lyra was on Svalbard with the bears with Yuffa and it's interesting to see Philip just write it plain as day that how alike they are because it's it's obvious like through the books, but I don't think it's ever really said. It might have been said that Lyra's like Azriel, but it's never said that Azriel's like Lyra, which I like a lot. The bit where Azriel's telling Yoffa that he's going to be frank with him and then just reels off a bunch of lies. You don't get more Lyra than that, really, do you? No, <laughs> definitely not. Yeah, also when we've seen Lyra be deceitful, perhaps we've had it more often compared to Mrs. Coulter mm. and her wiliness, whereas you can see that from this, it's definitely something that comes from both of her parents. Absolutely. The next little slide that we get is short and sweet, and it's all about Mrs. Coulter. Yes. I'm just going to read it. Sure. Because you know that we stand Coulter. <laughs> As a villain, we know she's a bad person. <laughs> <laughs> Mrs. Coulter selected her lovers for their power and influence, but it did no harm if they were also good looking. <laughs> did she ever become fond of a lover? Not once. She could not keep her servants either. Fucking love that. So good. They perform a purpose and then I get rid of them. (laughs) Totally, totally. And I love, it shows how her brain works a little bit more, right? Mm Because she thinks of her lovers and her servants on the same level and exactly what you just said, they both perform some kind of purpose and then she's like, meh, whatever, fuck off, love it. I mean, I don't. It is not the way to go about treating people who want to have intimate relationships with. But but... (laughs) as a quality in a a villain, I like it. And also just like showed you as well how how lonely she must be and also how maybe her relationship with Azriel and how her marriage broke down and how her husband was murdered by Azriel has really affected her. She just like she doesn't want that again. Like she's scared of that happening again. In part, it's like it's a fierce it's a sign of her fierce independence, but also it could be a sign of her fear of codependence. Yes, exactly. Because She's selecting people based on what she wants to get, not what she needs as a person. And I think that's really interesting. Like she's selecting people as a way to climb the ladder. And like, we knew that that's what she was doing. We've spoken about how she uses her sexuality. She's like weaponizes her sexuality in order to get what she wants. But this is a really clear indication that yes, she is selecting her lovers based on power and influence. And yes, it doesn't matter if they're also very good looking. <laughs> I know about Boreal. <laughs> I, I literally, I was just going to say the exact same thing. <laughs> but yeah, interesting. Mrs. Coulter's fear of intimacy. Mm. Mm. 
Is that something that might come up again? <laughs> Who knows? We're flying through these, but let's carry on. So the sixth, the sixth one is all about Lyra and the boy that could spit further than anyone she knew. And we learned that his name is Dick Orchard and that she has a crush on him. And I think, I can't remember if we pulled this out in the first couple of chapters when she mentioned it, but I think from what was written there, I think it is kind of, maybe not so obvious, but like she obviously has some kind of infatuation with him because she's very impressed that he can spit further than anyone she knew. Mm Mm-hmm. And also this is kind of a glimpse of Lyra growing up a little bit, right? And like maybe being close to like hitting puberty, it it mentions that she'd kiss her pillow to see what it felt like. Oh, Lyra. I know, I know. And it's like the only hint that we get of her sexuality, I suppose, in a way, and her like thoughts around having a crush and kissing her pillow and that curiosity around her sexuality and just sex in general we haven't had anything like that i'm trying to just find the initial paragraph where she does meet him so that i can work out how obvious it is that she does have a crush on him here we go so this is chapter three i think i think it's lyra's oxford Mm -hmm. lyra's jordan even so lyra's like spent the day hanging around and then she's found out that another kid's gone missing and she's gone to find the older boys to ask what the what is this being shutting up time, there are a few vans there now, but a knot of youths stood smoking and talking by the central gate opposite the high stone wall of St Michael's College. Lyra knew one of them, a 16-year-old she admired because he could spit further than anyone else she'd ever heard of, and she went and waited humbly for him to notice her. Yeah, I think it is quite obvious, right? Especially the waiting humbly for him to notice her a bit. Yeah, it's very much like what we were just saying about the Egyptian boats and like hanging around the cool kids you want to notice you, just being like, I'm going to lean nonchalantly against this <laughs> Oh, this is wall. just where I hang out. <laughs> and look cool. <laughs> oh, I didn't notice you there, a group of people I desperately want to notice me. <laughs> very much that. So I think we definitely called Lyra on that crush. So yeah. thank you for confirming it, Philip. <laughs> yes, thank you. Yeah, and I do really like that glimpse into her sexual awakening in a way, like having a crush on somebody is very much related to like your sexuality and thinking about those things for the, th- for the first time and all that kind of stuff. Well, I still feel like it's also very innocent. It's very much like kissing a boy band poster on your bedroom wall when you're like, yeah. however old, because you know that that's what, that's what people do is they have crushes on people in boy bands. I think Lyra knows that's what girls do is they have crushes on the boy that can do the most impressive thing. And for her, it's the spitting. <laughs> mm, yeah, that's true. That's in, that's an interesting take, actually. That it's more, would you what do you think it's more performative than it is actually her having those feelings? Not necessarily that, but I just think it's still a very innocent level of crush. Oh yeah, yeah. It's still very childlike to be like kissing your pillow just to mm. see what it's like because I think it's whilst it is like part of a beginnings of like a sexual awakening or like journey to and through puberty. I think it is still the very much like the child level, the child. Absolutely. Just the very, like very beginning stages of it where you're just starting to understand like, what is a crush? And like, oh, it me- it must mean I want to kiss them. What is kissing like? I'll have a go at kissing my pillow oh. to find out. Because <laughs> I know that when big kids have crushes, they kiss. So, yeah. Did you ever kiss yeah. your pillow? I don't know. I can't remember. I don't think I did. I don't think it was... Uh... Did you ever, like, when people were like, oh, you've got to put your hand together to my lips and pretend yeah, yeah. to kiss that? 
Uh, yeah. Oh, fun times. Kissing a pillow must be weird though, right? Because it's just very not like a human. Exactly. Like- <laughs> <laughs> Same as kissing a poster. Got that S Club 7 poster on the wall. Give Bradley a big old kiss. Oh. <laughs> but secretly want to kiss, uh, is it Joe that had the short hair? Yeah, I liked Hannah. Well, obviously Rachel was my favourite because my name is also Rachel. And as a child, if there's a thing that you like and someone has the same name as you, they have to be your favourite person. Absolutely. I remember <laughs> remember Steps. I fucking loved Steps. And there's somebody called Faye in Steps. And I was like, I like Faye the best, but it's not because it's not she's got my name. I just like her the best. It's <laughs> no. definitely because she had my name. <laughs> The seventh one, moving on, is an interesting one too. So this is about every year in Jordan, the poor domestic bursar has to find Lyra and make her sit for a photogram. And Lyra puts up with it and she scowls in every photo, classic Lyra. And also classic Lyra, she never thinks to ask what they're used for. She just kind of assumes that people want pictures of her because it's her. (laughs) And they're sent to Asriel. So they're sent to Asriel and it says that he would never have let her know and I've got two things to say about this. One, if this was in the book, then maybe I would have been a smidge kinder to him. Literally, mm-hmm. the only hint that we get that he gives a flying fuck about her is that he wants a picture of her. When it says he would never have let her know, why is it so wrong to let your daughter know that you care about her? Fragile masculinity. Oh, He's been taught to like repress his emotions. And so why would he ever think to let somebody know that he cares enough about them that he wants to see them grow up from afar because Mm. he can't be around showing that kind of vulnerability is not something that's been trained into him by the patriarchy yeah very true he's a victim of the patriarchy too aren't we all that when he begins to perpetuate the system in a way that begins to feel very vindictive Mm. (laughs) we do not appreciate it (laughs) (laughs) it's true Aren't we all victims of that horrible patriarchy? Yay. Yeah. But that, I liked that one. That was a good one. I like to see some hints of Azriel giving a shit. Yeah, we like to see a bit of humanity in it. Just like to see a bit of humanity full stop, you know? <laughs> it's all we ask for. And it's something that Azriel's been trained never to show. Second to last one, the eighth one, is about a story that Benny, the pastry cook at Jordan, is telling, or the Egyptians are telling him a story, the Costa family are telling him a story. And the first bit of this is very interesting. And I think this is why Laurel sent us these in the first place, because she meant we were talking about demons and how if you're a woman, you have a male demon and vice versa. Benny is a pastry cook at Jordan and he has a male demon. This is so interesting because it, it, Philip just kind of flies past this point without explaining. Yeah, he does it in the book as well. I think it's mentioned very briefly that he was one, one of those rare individuals whose demon was the same gender as he was. Yeah, do you know what? I think you're right because I, I had it in my brain that it, somewhere it's, it had been said somewhere that it was rare, that it was rare to have yeah. that, but I can't remember where it said it. I'm pretty sure it is when Lyra re... Uh, reconnects with Egyptians after she's rescued from the throwing nets. Mar Costa says that they had someone watching over her in the kitchens. I ah. think it's mentioned that that person is Benny. Oh, well, that that would make total sense then, right? Because, like, Benny's on the boat with the Costas talking about Lyra. So it makes yeah, total sense. Yeah, so I think that's how we get to know who he is. Actually, you know what? I don't even think it's then. I think it's in uh, Frustration. Is that when Lyra finds out that 
Mrs. Coulter is her mum. Mark Hoster is saying to Lyra, you wouldn't know, but there's been someone watching over you and reporting to us ever since you've been there because we got an interest in you and that Egyptian woman who nursed you, she's never stopped being anxious on your behalf. And Lyra says, who was it watching over me? She felt immensely important and strange that all her doings (laughs) should be an object of concern so far away. Mark Hoster says, it was the kitchen servant. It was, oh, interesting. It was Bernie Johansson, which is... This says Benny, doesn't it? Or does yeah. it? Did Benny. I read it wrong? No, it is. It says Benny in the lantern size and it says Bernie in the books. Ooh. Oh. <laughs> um, Ma says it was the kitchen servant. It was Bernie Johansson, the pastry cook. He's half Egyptian. You never knew that, I'll be bound. Bernie was a kindly, solitary man. One of those rare people whose demon was the same sex as himself. It was Bernie she'd, spot, uh, she'd shouted at in despair when Roger was taken. And Bernie had been telling the Egyptians everything. So super skimmed past, but it just says he's one of those rare people. I can't believe I didn't think about that. Like, like I said, I had it in my brain that somebody had said it was rare in the books, but I just didn't think, I can't, my memory's terrible. I just didn't think to go back and look. But that's so interesting. So with this as well, when I read it in the lantern slide, it made me think about Philip. If he'd thought about it and what it meant, does it mean that Benny is a trans character or non-binary? But then we know that Philip hasn't thought about that because when he did the 25th anniversary of Northern Lights, that Twitter Q&A, somebody asked him about that and said what would happen with demons if the person is trans or non-binary or discovered that aspect of themselves later on in life. Philip said something along the lines of that he's not sure how it would work and it's something that he'd need to think more about. So we know that when he was writing this, he wasn't thinking about that. He was just thinking about, oh, it's rare, but it can happen to have the same uh, have a demon be the same sex as yourself maybe it hadn't fully occurred to him but i'd like to think that maybe he was just pushing that door open a crack most levels of binary make me feel uncomfortable because there's no room there and i would hope that maybe philip is the same and he's like oh if i make this binary too strict maybe i've not left room for more exciting interpretations to be drawn here i'll kick that door open a little bit in passing so that if i ever need to come back to it the door is at least ajar and I can swing yeah. it open further if I need to. But maybe maybe it's not. Maybe he just thought, oh, that'll be interesting. Who knows? Either way, it's good that he has nudged that door open a little bit because then it leaves room for those things, whether he was thinking consciously about it or not. Yeah, just having the door open for anyone reading to make their personal connection with the book and make their head canon fit just makes me happy like if you can read the book and you can and you as a non-binary person know how you think your demon would be then that is 100% valid. Yeah, absolutely. But unfortunately, that's not what this paragraph is about. (laughs) I knew that we were going to end up talking a lot about that, but it's not the main point of this uh, lantern slide at all. No. Thanks, Phil. (laughs) (laughs) You're just kicking that door open again and letting it swing right shut on itself. (laughs) Yeah. So basically what happens in this one is Benny is sitting with the Costa family, listening to the story of Lyra Hydra how she hijacked their butt, a little bit of Grand Theft Auto callback. They were demanding that somebody discipline the brat. And I was like, oh, Costas, we know you love her really. <laughs> you don't mean that. <laughs> they definitely were like, but they, she did steal my boat. I am very pissed off about it. <laughs> yeah. Benny laughs and then tells him a story of his own about Lyra, which is such a weird story. She rescues a starling from a kitchen cat, but it ends up dying anyway. And then she plucks and gutters it and then sneaks it into the oven in the kitchen 
hoping to get it when it was cooked. And I was like, why? Like, is she going to eat it? Does she really want to eat it? Like, I know it says at the end that, like, she could have eaten it and been fine. But I was like, why does she want to eat it? Just weird, morbid child, creepy child curiosity. I love it. It's like a little bit of um, an April Ledgate moment. Yeah, that's very true. She's a weird kid. Like, we know that she loves, like, gory stuff. And there's the whole thing of she rescued a different bird off the rooftops and she wanted to kill it and eat it or, like, dissect it or something. And Roger convinced her to nurse it back to health instead. Like, we know she's a creepy child. <laughs> Where the fuck was Roger when she was cooking this yeah. fucking Stalin? That's what I want to know. <laughs> Probably just like nervously wringing his hands in the background like, Lyra, what, you're going to get me fired. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, God. So she wants to go and try and cook it and she puts it in the oven and then the chef tells her to get lost. And in the confusion, the cooked Stalin goes out to the table and is eaten by the master. So the master eats it and then has a bad stomach because of it. And then that's when the truth comes out. Lyra said it wasn't for him anyway, and he must have had a delicate he must have a delicate sc- stomach, and that she could have eaten it and would have been fine. And then she got banned from the kitchens for a term. <laughs> and then the Costa family are like, "Oh, it seems we got off lightly." And it's like, "Yeah, she could have filled your oven with dead birds, I guess. <laughs> like, Give you a light poisoning, just light food just, poisoning, just a smidge of poisoning." Yeah, I just really love that everyone's talking about Lyra. And they all have their own stories about her terrorising them. Yeah. It kind of, I forgot we laughed about it in the first couple of chapters, but because we've gone on such a journey with Lyra, I forgot how much of a little terror she was to everyone. Mm-hmm. It shows how far she's come. This is yeah. This is kind of why I love that these are included at the end of the book, because it is like a little shot of nostalgia for all of the books that you've yeah. just read to just get these like this like bonus content on a bunch of characters that you spent a whole book growing to know and love. Yeah. Totally. The last one is about our fave, Serafina Pekala, who... Yay! I swear in my head she featured so much more heavily in the book than she actually mm. did. Like she's such a major character for me that I almost felt robbed reading through again and reading about this book on the podcast because I'm like, why haven't we talked more about Serafina Pekala? But I think it's because she's just this like ever-present person who could show up to help but isn't actually physically there for more than like a chapter and a half all we've had her do really throughout this book is just be the like fucking giles the person that just gives all the context and the like exposition she's just been having these conversations with people where she's just been adding more to the narrative but we've not really seen much from her as in her character like we know a bit obviously from her relationship with father Corum. But again, that came from Farda Karam. It didn't come from her. We've met more of her demon than we have of her herself, even though they are technically like the same person. Yeah, exactly. So I'm hoping that like, as the books go on, we get to know her more rather than just being that vehicle for giving some exposition. We actually get to know her character a little bit more. Definitely. More witches, please. <laughs> yes, please. But yeah, basically in this uh, London slide, it's quite a short one again. She is on a cloud pine listening to silence. But she realises that it's not silence. She's listening to dust. And it's probably another one that we could read out, right? Seraphina Pecklet on her cloud pine would find a still field of air at night and listen to the silence. Like the air itself, which was never quite still, the silence was full of little currents and turbulence, of patches of density and pockets of attenuation. All shot through with darts and drifts of whispering that were made of silence themselves. It was as different from the silence of a closed room as a fresh spring water is from stale. Later, Serafina realised that she was listening to dust. 
I really like it. It's just, it's so Philip writing about witches, isn't it? <laughs> like, it's very ethereal, very like, ooh, being in touch with nature, very wishy-washy while still being very solid. And we still literally get to know very little about Seraphina herself. Yeah, it's, again, she's just been used as a vehicle for something else. Yeah. Like, she's been used as like a vehicle for us to learn a bit more about dust and that you can listen to dust. Yeah. Um, It's not really about her character. And they're like, if you're in touch and you listen to the silence of the world, dust is audible and it's like cool but it's just a lady sat on a broom we don't know that much more about <laughs> Serafina so yeah. come on girl What what what's your likes what's your dislikes I want to know your favourite colour <laughs> yeah exactly exactly but yeah that's it That that's all the lantern slides I actually really really enjoyed them I always think it's really nice to have some kind of extra to like a book that you've just enjoyed without it retconning too much like fucking JK Rowling with like I mean, obviously Wizards we don't want to on the floor. speak her name. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> With her every two minutes being like, oh, actually Dumbledore's gay or actually this is what blah, blah, blah. And it's like, fuck off, JK. It's nice to have this at the end of the actual book itself to be like, oh, these are just a few bits. Like, and they don't change, like Philip says in the intro, like they don't change the story massively. They just give you a little bit more insight. And I really like that because anything that gives me extra content on a book that I really enjoy that you feel is actually written properly and Philip actually thought about it, then I'm like, yes, I'm fucking here for this. I love it. Yeah, it just adds more stuffing to the world. Yeah. Like it makes it feel fuller and it doesn't change the shape of the final product particularly. It just makes it feel like, yeah, fuller and more exciting. Also, I love his whole attitude towards authorship in a lot of ways where I've said it many times, it's one of my favourite quotes from him is that like, writing a book is a dictatorship where the author has full control over all of their subjects and characters publishing a book and allowing it out into the world is a democracy all of the readers will make of it what they will and the consensus rules like and everyone can take from it what they want to take from it and I just think it feels right and adding these snippets and suggestions is such like a it's a very democratic way of doing it I think it's very much like I'm just gonna offer this up and it's not gonna massively rock the world that you've become accustomed to it's just a tidbit. It's just a little, a little answer, a little question. More than these, less answering questions and more providing more questions and more things for you to think about as the reader than it is talking about wizards pooping on the floor because there weren't any toilets and I've just decided that's a fact. Like, yeah, it's yeah. irrelevant. It confuses everything. It's not. Here's an interesting thing about a character that allows you personally to go on that journey into your head with that character and think more about what you think about them and make your own decisions, which I think is what Philip's inviting with the lantern slides. Totally. And it's also just, again, just going back to fucking shitty JK Rowling. It's just nice to know that like Philip clearly has a fully formed vision of these characters in his head that he, like you said, that he then hands off to us. The bit about Asriel uh, wanting the photo of Lyra and things like that, he has written Asriel in his head as a fully formed character knowing that he he does have this care for Lyra but he made the decision to not really put that across in the first book it gives you a bit more of a glimpse into like the intricacies of how a writer works really because he's holding a lot back because he's got at this point after Northern Lights was was finished he had two other books to write in a trilogy and you can't give everything away immediately but it's nice to have those little tidbits that he decided would add to the story 
but then lets you carry on with the story how you would have anyway. It doesn't really change much from what you were thinking, apart from like these little nice pockets of truth about like Azrael and like learning about Mrs. Coulter and how her romantic past has affected her romantic future and that kind of thing. I also love that he answers questions in a very, very honest way. If someone asks him something he's not thought about, he'll just say, oh, I'll have to think about that. Yeah, totally. That's not a way that I've approached this before. I'll have a think and I'll let you know. And I'm like, yes, that's brilliant. Love it's it. made me think, actually, completely slightly aside off topic. Somebody tweeted at him asking, in one of the books, I'm pretty sure it's not spoilery to mention it because it's a very aside topic. Uh, he says that animals can very clearly tell the difference between a demon and an animal. Or people can very clearly tell the difference. Like, you're not going to accidentally shoot a deer that is somebody's demon if you're in the forest. Like, it's not going to happen because you can just tell. And uh, somebody asked if animals can see the same thing, if animals can tell the difference between a person and a demon. Because it's not like a cat would approach a demon cat and think it's another cat, it would know. And Philip was like, oh, I think the animal just looks at the person with the demon and goes, that's the big bit. And that's the little bit. <laughs> and it's all one entity. And they just know. And yeah. I just kind of love the idea of thinking of it like that. It's not like that's a person and their otter who is also a person. It's just that's the big part of the person and that's the animal part of the person. Yeah, that's like, really great. I'm so here for Philip answering obscure questions online. <laughs> yeah, we love, we love to see it, Phil. We love you. We yes. appreciate you. Thank you so much for listening to this special episode of Herd Art Materials. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at HDMPod and you can email us at HerdArtMaterialsPod at gmail.com. You can also visit our website at HDMPod.co.uk. If you want to support us, you can become a patron at Patreon.com forward slash HDMPod. You can also rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find us. I'm Faye, and when I'm not talking about Lyra and Pan, I'm probably writing. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Faye, which is F-A-Y-E-L-E triple Y. And if you want to read some of my blog posts, I'm on Medium at Faye.Ducker. I'm Rachel, and when I'm not here chatting to you lovely folks about lantern slides, I'm making designer toys, art and illustrations. You can find me over on Instagram at RachMakes, on Twitter at Rach underscore makes, and in my online shop, RachMakes.co.uk. Thanks as always to Johnny Knott for his musical stylings. We'll see you next week for our discussion on the Golden Compass film. And don't forget, keep telling stories and all will be well. Bye. Bye. I hope you enjoyed it. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Bye.